Our Father, we thank you as we come together to worship you in the security of your love and of your uh, care for us. We pray that we may be reminded again of how secure is that love and be sent out into the world into an insecure and dangerous place knowing that we walk with you day by day to show your love and to do your will. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Last week, Psalm 60. Today, Psalm 61. Perhaps you'd like to turn to it in your Bibles, page 578. One of the reasons I love the Psalms is because they're poetry, uh, with all the imagination and metaphor which go with that, although it does mean that as we approach them, we have to be cautious to remember that they are poetry and uh, understand them in a slightly different way. Another reason I love the Psalms is that they're so honest. We, don't, we really do know what's going on in the guy's mind. He tells us what's on his heart. And he's telling God about life as it is for him. And as we eavesdrop on the openness of and honesty of his prayer, we see that the Spirit of God is helping him to see what God wants him to see. And his experience and God's revelation merge wonderfully together. And my prayer for us this morning is that this will be true for you and for me as well. Would you look at Psalm 61 as we look at the title line? We're not holy writ, but it's uh, an indication that probably the psalm was written by David. And many of the commentaries seem to think that it was uh, reflecting David's feeling after he'd been betrayed by his son Absalom. Absalom had um, murdered his stepbrother Amnon a few years back and he'd fled. Uh, but after five years away, David received him back uh, as a forgiving father, and he uh, reinstated him. So what did Absalom do in gratitude to his father for this magnanimous gesture? He gathered an army and plotted to overthrow him and to take over his throne. It's quite possible um, that uh, this psalm, Psalm 61, was written by David as he fled for his life. And as he was in exile, frightened and fearful, and the things that he thought were safe and secure, his relationship with his son, for example, he thought it uh, was, was, was safe. But in fact, it was sinking sand when he thought it was solid rock. So here he is, out there in the desert, lonely, and alone, and everyone else at home seemed to be okay and successful, and he was alienated and fearful. Just look at his desperate cry in verse 1. Hear my cry, O God, listen to my prayer. From the ends of the earth I call to you, I call as my heart grows faint. He's feeling like you might feel when you sit on a chair thinking it's secure and it collapses underneath you or you put your foot on the brake as you go down a hill and it's, your foot goes right down to the floorboards and nothing happens. And you wonder, what can you rely on? On whom can you rely? 
Where can you find the safety and security that we need? And he's also saying, I feel isolated and alone. Nobody seems to understand. They all seem to have deserted me. They're all successful and free of problems. That's how David felt. And I guess, if we're honest, that's how sometimes it's how we feel. Being let down by someone in whom you thought you could trust, who goes around assassinating your character behind your back. Do you know something of that? I do. And it's very hurtful and painful. And the closer the relationship, the harder it is to come to terms with the treachery and deceit. And Absalom, remember, was David's son. So let's first look at where David found in that situation, where he found his security. Verse 2. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the foe. Three words there which speak of where he's finding or looking for his security. A rock, a refuge, a tower. You get the picture. Rocks. In my younger days, I used to take uh, 40 or so boys, 15-year-old boys from the school where I taught to Christian outdoor centres, usually in Scotland. Uh, it proved over the years to be an effective form of evangelism. These hunky, skillful and well-qualified Christian instructors earned the respect and friendship of the boys as they sailed or canoed with them in pretty testing conditions. You learn quite a bit about an instructor, or more likely even yourself, when you're clinging by your fingernails to a cliffside, or you're climbing mountains in thick mist, trusting the instructor will lead you safely to the top and down again, and not the quick way down. And when you'd learned to trust and respect these guys for their professionalism and their friendship, you were ready to, uh, to listen to what they had to say about why, were they, why they were the kind of guy they were and to put your trust in the God they loved <coughs> and served. It was lovely to see that happening year after year. But one of the Christian outdoor centres we went to for many years was in Glencoe. And the grounds of the centre went down to the River Coe just before it flowed into Loch Leven. In the centre of the stream was a huge rock embedded deep into the ground and towering over the stream and the banks of the river. When we went in the summer, the stream flowed gently by, caressing the foot of the stone and the dappled light of the sun. When we went in the winter to ski in the days when there used to be snow in Scotland, uh, and the snows were melting, the gentle stream had become a raging torrent, all but covering the rock and cascading down into the loch with branches of trees and all man manner of debris ramming hard against it. The river was very fickle. It was always changing. It was always on the move. There was nothing secure about it. The rock was solid, immovable, always the same. David, desperate in his insecurity and fear, cried out for the rock that is higher than I. He knew from his past experience of God's unfailing love and mercy that the one person on whom he could rely, the one person who was unchanging in his steadfast love, was the God who had chosen and called him. 
He looked back to the one who had revealed himself to him and given him his word through Samuel when he said, rise, said to Samuel, rise and anoint him. He is the one. That was when David was chosen and selected. And David ever after tried to live by faith in God the rock. What do you try to live by? Where is your security based? Is it on your family, on your possessions, on your skill, on your hard work? They're pretty much like the river in Glencoe rather than the rock that we're thinking about. For the Christian, you know that faith means F-A-I-T-H, when we forsake all and I trust him. We're not putting our trust in anything material, anything finite, anything transitory. We're putting our trust only in the Lord we, we, we aim to love and serve. And that faith is not a dry theoretical faith, but a living, vital, day-to-day experience of walking with Jesus. And for all of us who call themselves Christians, there must have been a time, whether we were conscious of it or not, when we first came to put our trust in him and committed our life to him, knowing that he's forgiven us and restored us and made us his own. But that's only part of the gospel. That's only the beginning of the gospel for us as individuals. We need to find each new day in our own experience what it is to trust in the rock, to know the security of that rock as we go through everyday life. So I ask you this morning, did you mean what you sang just now? You are my rock in times of trouble. You lift me up when I fall down. All through the storm, your love is the anchor. My hope is in you alone. You alone. Is that true for you? Is that the root of your security? Are you proving it to be true in the storms and buffeting of life day by day? That's where David is rooted. But there is a sense, as we look on in this psalm, not only of his security, but of his insecurity. In these first three verses, David has concentrated on his prayer on the solid immovables of faith. The rock, the refuge, the tower. The God he worshipped and sought to follow, he's saying, is utterly dependable. A rock and refuge, a place of safety, a secure tower. But as we move into verses 4 and 5, the imagery changes. We're now on a journey The metaphors change away from rocks and towers to tents and the shelter of your wings. And of course, David is thinking of the tent which symbolized the presence of God as Moses and the Israelites journeyed from Sinai to the Promised Land. It was saying to them, symbolically, wherever you go, the Lord is with you. We've seen already that the Christian's security is in the rock-like love of Jesus who will never let us down. Once we put our hand in his, he will never let it go. 
But some Christians seem to take that to mean that we should spend the rest of our lives sheltering in the garrison, glorying in that warm glow of belonging, and not risking things out there on the journey of life with him. We can spend so much time and energy back home in in base, worrying about whether we've got the truth sorted out, that we forget that Jesus not only said, I am the truth, but he said, I am the way, and I am the life. The gospel is so much more than conversion, although it must start there. But that's just the beginning. He calls us to follow him. Like Peter, to get out of the security of the boat and walk to him on the water. And so many of us are sitting there in the boat saying, well done, Peter, you're a great guy. We're really praying for you out there on the water. We're right behind you. And we sit there in the boat hanging on. Jesus, uh, Peter's security was, uh, was, was, was to go to Jesus looking at him. And Jesus, as I, if you can find something different, do tell me afterwards, but Jesus never promised us security in a finite sense. He never promised an easy time. He did warn us uh, that in this life we should expect to live in insecurity. As the children of Israel lived in insecurity as they faced all the hazards of the Red Sea, as they faced hunger and thirst in the wilderness. But right there with them, whatever experience they went through, was the tent. What does it symbolize? The presence, the power, the Spirit of God. Whatever they faced, he was there. And they were there, in verse 5, under the shelter of his wing. One of the privileges of belonging to this church family here at Forward, and there are many, is the evidence day by day that Christians never travel alone. We have the tent of God's presence with us on the way. I can think of so many families in this church over the years who faced tragedy, untimely deaths of sons and daughters, financial disaster, failure, periods of deep and disturbing doubt but who by their life and witness in their particular uh, wilderness have testified powerfully to the deep-seated joy and ultimate hope in the Lord who has ransomed, healed, restored and forgiven them. They find that there, at the bottom of their pit of despair, at the bottom of their pit of fear, they feel, as someone once described it to me, that they are shoveling fog. Do you ever felt like that? But they know that in spite of that, God is there with them. How do we know that? How can I say that? Why, because in his earthly life, Jesus knew all about desolation and despair. It was Jesus on the cross who said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's why when we're down there in the pit, we find Jesus is down there with us. We find him there waiting for us. He knows what it's like. And in whatever situation we face, Christ leads us through no darker room than he has been before. The natural thing is to concentrate our prayers on, Lord, get me out of here. Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer as he prayed himself in Gethsemane. Father, not my my will, but yours be done. May your will be done. 
Do you head off to your work or college or school or that difficult situation tomorrow saying as you get there, as you get into that difficult situation, or what do you say? Help. Or do you say, good morning, Lord. He's there in that situation. He's there waiting for you. He knows all about it. He knows all about your fears, your frustrations. He knows how much you want to get out of that situation, get back home to the security of your own tower. He's there with you. Uh, I don't know what your nine o'clocks are going to be tomorrow or this week. I know what mine are and I've got one or two nine o'clocks, I can tell you, this week. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that we shouldn't bring all our prayers and requests to the Lord and tell him just how we feel, as David does here. And sometimes we can all, I guess, testify to those glorious moments when we've been in a desperate situation and we have prayed, Lord, I can't cope with this. You must. And he has. But often he is expecting us to be there and recognizing his presence in the pit. The trouble is we have been brainwashed by our society to think that we live in a culture of success. But we're not called to be successful. We're called to be faithful. I was reading on holiday, Janice and I were in a caravan holiday in the south of France, a wonderful time, and you do get time in a caravan to read and nobody interrupts. And we were reading, um, both of us, some books by Dennis Lennon, who we both respect and find very helpful. And uh, this is one on prayer. And he's saying here that some people seem to assume that the surest sign of God's love is a trouble-free life in which success, guidance and blessing arrive on the dot because isn't that what a father does for his children? In fact, what our father desires, he says, is real men and women. Thus he takes up and uses all the character-forming materials which happen to be lying about, the knocks and shocks, the pitfalls and setbacks which life throws up. Our culture of ease and convenience, efficiency and productivity makes testing seem an intolerable nuisance. An American Christian wrote to me, he said, In America, Christians pray for the burden of suffering to be lifted from their back. In the rest of the world, Christians pray for stronger backs so they can bear the suffering. Let's make sure we're not being brainwashed by our culture. Paul in Colossians knew that uh, Jesus never promised that life would be easy. And in Colossians 1.28, he says, I labor, I struggle, but I struggle with all Christ's energy which so powerfully works in me. The message of this psalm is that it's precisely when we feel we are in exile, when we're in the desert, when we're in the wilderness, when we're lonely, separated from earthly means of support, it's precisely then in the struggle that we find Christ's energy works so powerfully in me. Does it? Faith isn't just something we experience when we first put our trust in Christ. It's an everyday walk with the Lord, step by step, trusting him in every situation, the good times and the bad times. 
Janice and I have been talking about this during our caravan holiday, and uh, before we drove homewards on the auto route from the Pyrenees each day, it was a long way actually with a caravan, um, uh, we, uh, we prayed, obviously, as we always do, uh, and committed the day to the Lord, and we prayed for safety, and we prayed that he would be with us. And one morning, lovely September morning, as we trundled along, an overtaking car on the motorway threw up a square piece of wood which had been lying in the fast lane. And uh, I watched it sort of slow motion as you do driving along. This piece of wood came hurtling off the motorway and headed generally in our direction um, and just missed the windscreen and the car but hit the caravan with sufficient force to smash the windows and the frame which held the caravan together uh, and uh, made the caravan we got uh, back in it, but uh, it is now a write-off. So we patched up the windows with some good tape, which we always carry with us, and carried on. And about uh, three quarters of an hour later, uh, I looked through the mirror and I saw that um, the caravan was at a slightly odd angle. There was an odd noise coming from it. And the noise became more metallic as we went on. And what had happened was the offside um, tyre had, had uh, shredded. And we were now running along happily on the rim. So we drew into the side and called in our best French for the emergency services and they hauled this caravan onto the back of their lorry and took it off. And as they were driving it off, we were getting in the car to follow them and I turned the key in the car and the battery was flat, a new battery. And uh, Janet and I sat there in the security of the top of the motorway grass, as you do, and said to each other, what do you think the Lord is teaching us? in this and remarkably we both said the same thing and we were both in exactly the same point in our thinking we were saying to each other um, God doesn't take us out of situations but he gives us strength and grace to cope within them and there was with both of us it's quite amazing really um, a sense of peace and almost joy not joy that we're going to get a new caravan out of this, but um, joy that um, in that situation we knew the Lord's presence. And he was with us, and he'd been watching over us. Yes, he'd, he'd uh, allowed us not to be uh, killed by the thing going through the windscreen, maybe. Not sure about the theology of that, but uh, we can talk about it afterwards. He doesn't take us out of the danger zone, but there in the trauma, he is with us. It wasn't just the caravan that was traveling with us. It was a tent as well, which symbolized the presence and the power of the Lord. And that, in verse 5, was part of what I think the psalmist meant when he said, this is the heritage of those who fear your name. That's what we should expect as we journey along through the experiences of life. And God promises to us, as he long ago promised to Joshua, and as Jesus promised, quoted in Hebrews, when he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Whatever experience it is, he is there. He doesn't take you out of it necessarily, but he's there in it with you. 
And lastly, and I haven't really got time to finish the psalm properly, um, but we've got these verses 6 and 7, which are really all about kingship. And David points us here to the root of his confidence in why he can say all the things he's been saying. And now we're turning around from, from, from David pouring out his soul to the Lord to, him, to the Lord coming back to him and helping him to understand. So it's about David's ultimate confidence. It's about kingship. It's David's confidence in the fact that God has set up in Israel, in the Old Testament, his king. He has established his kingdom. And David doesn't trust in physical things. He trusts in the sovereignty of God's kingship. Now, if that's true for David, how much more is it true for us Easter people who are living beyond the cross and resurrection, who have seen Jesus to be not only Saviour, but Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And the whole world is ultimately under his control. And every situation we meet, he knows about it. Every situation we find ourselves, he's there in it. And ultimately, ultimately, he will be victorious. That's why we're singing in our last hymn, Rejoice, the Lord is King. And with Job we can say, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. And as I close, just look at verse 8, David's response to all of this. What's he got to say in his prayer to the Lord? It's really worship, isn't it? First, he's singing praise to the Lord in the company of his people. He's giving God the the praise which is due to his name. And that's what we're doing here this morning, amongst other things. And secondly, he's fulfilling his vows day after day. And he doesn't mean religious vows, I don't think. He means living life in such a way that it reflects the certainties of which we've been speaking. It reflects the radiance of God's love and power and protection and his fatherly kindness so that those who see our lives and our thinking and our behaviour are drawn through the radiance which we display, a faint reflection of God's love, something of God's beauty and love. In Psalm 34, um, Uh, The psalmist says, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. It's my prayer for myself. It's my prayer for you that in the days of this week, your faces may be radiant and never covered with shame because you have the confidence of God the rock in Christ and you know that wherever you go, the tent is travelling with you.